Podcast, the only book club podcast that endorses real, hopefully sustainably grown trees for any winter holiday, Christmas, or, you know, other other such holidays. I just don't think you can <laughs> fake the real thing, Amanda. One of the great joys in life is having a tree companion with you in your home. You go over a couple times a day, you pluck a needle off, you break it in half. That's just pure ecstasy to me. <laughs> I mean, I like the smell of fresh Christmas trees, but Mm -hmm. I also just like that the fake Christmas trees, I'm not killing a bunch of trees each year. (laughs) Sustainably grown. Sustainably grown. That's all I'm saying. I had a friend, uh, because my family has always done as a little background about my family. We've always done real trees in the house. And I had a friend one year come over and kind of, he didn't want to argue about it, but he made it a, a large point. And I was like, we go to the same tree farm and they grow the same crop of trees. (laughs) It's not like a net negative on the earth. It's the same four acres of land. They just grow the trees in a rotating pattern. And then you you can grow trees again. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. As it turns out, one of the powerful things, yeah, they they can come back if you, you know, manage them. So anyway, Mm -hmm. yeah, always, always sustain those trees. Make sure you're getting them from a quality source, you know. Nothing disreputable. If you can, yeah. go cut your own. That's even more fun. <laughs> Sustainable. Chopping down trees is mm. kind of fun. <laughs> it is. It is. Get the axe ready. Get the get the handlebar out. If you have no idea why we're talking about cutting down and smelling the fresh pines of the forest, that is because you have stumbled upon a book club episode, specifically a book club part two episode for the novel We Are Okay by Nina LaCour. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have uh, Instagram and Facebook accounts under that name, all one word, so it's at the Lightly Literary Podcast. If you're looking for just our schedule, promotions about the stuff we're doing, reminders of what's coming up and what we're reading, that's where you should follow us, so check us out there, and wherever you found this podcast, we appreciate like, a subscribe, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your grandmother, you know, she's. we know she's thinking about you, so go ahead and just tell her, we can connect over this <laughs> podcast I like. <laughs> Actually, don't do that, because then you have to explain what a podcast is, and anyway, it's, it's a whole thing. We appreciate the attempt, is I guess what we'll say. Um, As I mentioned, this is a book club episode. These are our analytical deep dive episodes. So today we'll be discussing the entirety of the novel, We Are Okay, by, again, author Nina LaCour. Um, If you have found yourself in the wrong place, that's okay. Check back in the feed. We have part one there for the first half of that novel. And we also have a book recommendation about it up in the feed, too. So if you've never heard of the book or have never read it, maybe go check out the book recommendation where we try and persuade you to read along with us and join us for the novel. But yeah, today the entire book is fair game since we have finished this book. We'll be kind of analyzing the whole thing in order. Any matters of business, Amanda, before we start? Well, I don't think so. Excellent. Well, let's just dive right in then, folks. Uh, The new format of the podcast, for those who are are longtime listeners, you'll know the format's different now. We actually are just going to tackle the second half of the book in kind of chronological order of chapters. We'll do some analysis and discuss the book along the way. And then when we get to the end, we've got a couple of final segments planned. But yeah, let's dive into this novel that we have now finished. Let's talk about the early parts of the second half, chapters roughly 11 to 13. Um, They're back on the college campus, Marin and Mabel. Did we decide on Marin? Marine? She, at the end there, she does specify that it is not uh, like 
not the same as like submarine, so it's not marine. Yeah. Instead, the emphasis is, is like Marin County or okay. something like that. Marin. Okay. Marin. Yeah. Yeah. Marin and Mabel. They settle in for an awkward night together. They play some cards and light chit chat. This is, I believe, when they're reconnecting again. Um, they're like having not such a bad time on campus now. They're they have got some kind of chemistry back, at least a little bit. Um, there's a couple of awkward flashbacks here. This is a novel, of course, that you know by now if you've been listening or reading, is a novel very much of flashbacks. This is one where Gramps kind of talks about love a little bit and talks about the type of love he has with, uh, what was her nickname? I mean, now Birdie? we know who it was. It, what'd yeah. you say? Birdie. Birdie. Talks about the kind of love you can have with, with Birdie and then gives some hostility to his buddies at the card game. Uh, kind of another awkward scene with Gramps. I'm not sure if that character fully comes together in the story. Uh, then again, I think that might be kind of the point, too. <laughs> it's it's right. kind of bristly, but never fully developed, not never fully ob- understood. He's kind of an obscure, angry guy. Um there's a title reference, so Marine and Mabel have a, you know, they have finally reconciled a bit, and I think at some point the narration literally says, we are okay, so I thought that was kind of funny, a very late title mm-hmm. reveal. And so this is also the revelation uh, in the story that we cut this off before part one, but it is a huge thing, because it reveals that Birdie is a fabrication. We, we don't fully understand the length of it yet, or the motivation but it is revealed in these chapters that birdie is some kind of fabrication for maybe emotional support or something right i think um i think the emotional support specifically because later when they when uh Murren is um thinking more about specifically when her grandfather when gramps was in the hospital and she had to stay with their friends oh, what was her name um started with a j Oh, John? Oh, Jane, yeah. Something like Jamie that. Jamie or John or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jamie maybe. Um, she she finds out from him that it wasn't because he was physically ill. So Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely some kind of something going on there, although it's never truly specified, but yeah. And this is the part, I know I mentioned this when summarizing, but that where they start to patch up their relationship, do you think the book captures their emotional kind of standing between Marin and Mabel pretty well. I, this is where I don't know if the flashbacks work for or against the book and it's like merits and building it up. There's some interesting quotes, certainly where she gets to reflect on their time together and what their lives were like when they were kind of in love living in San Francisco. There's one on 129 I pulled and it says, mm-hmm. we were innocent enough to think that our lives were what we thought they were, that if we pieced all the facts about ourselves together, they'd form an image that made sense that looked like us when we looked in the mirror, that looked like our living rooms and our kitchens and the people who raised us instead of revealing all the things we didn't know and so it's i mean doing a couple of things it, it reflects her turmoil of the moment you know she, that she didn't know her grandfather that she feels isolated from the world and doesn't have a family but i think it's also the capper kind of the end point of again finally we see some kind of healthy developments between marin and mabel did did their relationship seem well developed to you yeah, it was. Um, I, I found their relationship fascinating in a lot of ways, and I think that the the um, kind of like the the how nebulous everything seemed. Like they were lovers, but also they were like almost sisters as well in some ways. Because she, especially Mern, like really wanted 
a mother figure and mm-hmm. like looked yeah. to Anna as a mother in a lot of ways. So it's like weird in that way, but it's it's just so complex and complicated. And then also on top of that, they're growing up and they're going to be growing apart because they're going to be going to two. She's she had already planned on going to New York even before Gramps died. So they right. knew that they were going to be separate and, and that's going to change. the. I, I think the complexity of their relationship was, was really well done. Yeah, it's it's observed pretty well. And also, I just think that I don't know, there is a bit of a teenage. Do you think it captured their teenage years well enough The the pre-college? I don't know. Not recklessness, but they, they yeah. There's a couple of those late nights that obviously when they first like go to the beach and it's pretty much said that they have sex then, but the, whatever they connect yeah. finally um, over some whiskey or something. <laughs> I think it was whiskey. Yeah, I think there's just enough of that teenage stuff. It obviously the book is just so muted because it's about a person who's in a depression, so it's not right. it's not quite ecstasy laden YA fun flings or something like a Netflix movie would be. <laughs> right, I'm just <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm picturing this like up against Netflix teen movies that seem like really intensely romantic heavy things that are pitched in a really intense tone but yeah yeah that's how i feel yeah it's um i think that the the flashbacks for me my focus is always on um on her relationship with gramps because i was just trying to figure out that that mystery first especially since gramps's characterization is just like kind of strange it's not as straightforward as as you would normally get in um right a minor character so yeah the but the the antics i suppose of of Myrn, I, I thought that they were crazy enough it was like i never really did too many crazy things as a teenager either so and she she that's mm. maybe a part of the point is like her gramps didn't like ask her questions he just kind of let her do whatever and so she didn't feel the need to rebel and to do all these crazy things either because she was already allowed to do them yeah definitely yeah um one of the things that i of course picked up on was specifically the jane Eyre comparisons of course she'll be back um (laughs) she's not going away yep throughout um so we had talked um, on the last episode a little bit about like uh, when in that one scene at the diner when the they closed the diner so that the open sign was above their table and then she like explains that you know the meaning of that and how sometimes YA novels are <clears throat> really keen on making sure you pick up on the symbolism. So on page one thirty one. Mm-hmm. Um, the last paragraph, uh, she's she's comparing herself to Jane, uh, Jane Eyre. And if you haven't read Jane Eyre, then like, how did you get through high school? Um, but also, <laughs> I had to read Fitzgerald instead. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, so there's uh, Mr. Rochester, and, and she's talking about the haunting of Mr. Rochester's wife, where Jane Eyre is like you know haunted by that. So. And she's comparing herself um, to that situation. And she said, the fact of her was scary enough, but the fact of me in an identical room, just as alone as she was, that was the worst part. There's only a wall between us, and it was so thin it was almost nothing. Jane, too, was once locked up in a room with a ghost. It was terrifying, the idea that we would fall asleep girls, minty breath and nightgown, and wake to find ourselves wolves. 
that last sentence is really nice, but the where mm-hmm. she clarifies the relationship or how her comparison to Jane Eyre and then the woman who is like howling in the room next door is compared to Rochester's first wife who he kept in the attic. Mm-hmm. Like, I, if you're going to go all in with the Jane Eyre stuff, you're already assuming that your reader is like probably aware of Jane Eyre. So like the, the necessity to explain that bit the way that she did, I, I was just like, man, I don't know if she really needed to do that. Yeah, it's it pushed it a little. Well, here, I, I'm the point of view you wanted because I've never read Jane Eyre. So I oh, can okay. offer up my it, even I, too, thought it was too, a bit too much, especially I, I mean, we'll get to this towards the end. But at the end, I was like, you're this is just returned to a little too often or maybe too explicitly. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to lay the groundwork early on, set up a comparison between them, then feel free to do it. I'm sure there's subtle ones that I missed not knowing the character or something. But by mm-hmm. the end, I think I was that was when it tipped over for me. Um, or maybe if she was so it, it does. They make the point all the time that Marin has this literary mind or proclivities for those things and it does yeah. kind of, it just, and there's other references to other arts types of arts obviously and I think some poetry paintings but it, it does really seem to focus on the Jane Eyre stuff probably th- because of thematic relevance connections but it just yeah. felt a little too like it returned to the same one like it really wanted us to understand <laughs> and I think yeah, by the, the end I understood especially yeah yeah yeah, Definitely. and and I was surprised too, actually, as I was you know bombarded with the the Jane Eyre allusions, um, because at the beginning we see allusions to Sylvia Plath and to that was um, one Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. So yes. I thought that you, we would see more of a, a more of a variety in the in the latter half as well, but we really don't. We just get a whole bunch of Jane Eyre. Yeah, yeah, kind of abandoned. Sylvia Plath was the one I was thinking of before because they talked yeah. about her voice and listening to her speak and read. So, mm-hmm. definitely, yeah. Um, so the novel continues, um, and in the next couple of chapters, Mabel and Marin uh, trek back to the dorm after being snowed in at the um, groundskeeper's cottage yeah never to be heard from again the groundskeeper (laughs) kind of a funny interlude (laughs) yeah he was he's a nice guy yeah um and spending his christmas partying with his friends apparently Mm -hmm. um and they warm themselves with some hot showers some hot chili and some hot gossip about mabel becoming an aunt which causes murren to think about gramps and how he might have felt about her about her Murren. In the flashback, Murren is dealing with grief denial on two fronts. The first one is Gramps with his apparent illness that he's ignoring, and the other being Mabel's departure for college. And then back in the present, Murren gears up to finally reveal the secret of Gramps and Birdie. Dun dun dun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's. <sighs> I don't know how I feel about this entire twist. I I will say this. Uh, We're not quite there yet to the revelation. I guess I I enjoyed the twist. I thought it kind of worked. It was both... It's it's odd to say, uh, you know, a bit of a... Going to uncork a bit of a paradox here, or at least a oxymoron. But it was both too melodramatic and not melodramatic enough. Or it was both, like, too oddly specific, but not specific enough anyway i'll save my thoughts on the on the revelation for the i think it officially comes out in the next 
yeah in the next chapter yeah. so i'll, I'll, sa- I'll save yeah. it i'm I, maybe i was gearing up too soon um <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about some style stuff here then let me isolate something um this happens again i found in the back half a lot more than the front half uh, this author explores a few different ways to use repetition in a novel. I think her favorite is, and I this is with all the literary terms abandoned me, and I'll just speak generally or you know descriptively. She loves to start a sentence the same way multiple times in a row. I'm not sure which literary name that is, <laughs> but on on 153, for example, this is also in flashback. It was a summer of trying not to think too deeply, a summer of pretending that the end wasn't coming, a summer when I got lost in time, when I rarely knew what day it was, rarely cared about the hour, a summer so bright and warm it made me believe the heat would linger and there would always be more days, the blood on the handkerchiefs was an exercise in stain removal and not a sign of oblivion. It was a summer of denial. And then she keeps going on. Um, she does tend to kind of favor this when going through some things that are kind of favorable, though I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. some notable exceptions. I'm thinking of like the very, very ending of the book has a repeated line that is, that it's it's for the better. (laughs) It's definitely like a hopeful kind of line. Um, this jumped out to me, I suppose, because I think some of the best realized stuff, this one's kind of subtle, but I think some of the best realized stuff is sort of in that teenage nostalgia presenting that time period as condensed and tense and sort of, I don't know, it almost feels collapsed. So it felt like the repetition helped the most in those moments. Um, there are probably some other ones. Maybe I'll, if I can think to pull one later or have one that are maybe a little weaker, don't work. But I think for moments like that, doing the flashbacks, kind of condensing it down, uh, felt like it really worked and delivered the emotion it needed. Just kind of an efficient way. Yeah, I I think that uh, the repetition for me it just kind of gets you into the, especially because it's it, the repetition she she follows it with repeating very short phrases rather than something mm-hmm. that's overly long. So it's like it got a a staccato beat to it, which helps mm-hmm. I think to kind of like just punctuate her ideas. And um, it, yeah, I, I I like that. Um, I mm. think stylistically that was totally fine for me. Yeah, yeah, and it'll, I have one other example ready towards the end, but we'll I'll, I'll save that for when we get to it. Okay. Um, what I picked up on was symbolism in this chapter, mm-hmm. where um, the trek through the snow uh, is a representation of. Uh, the trek that they are making through their friendship back to being okay right with each other so there's a lot of pain there's some like hesitancy because you're like man i really i know that this is gonna hurt walking through all this snow (laughs) in my california boots um (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) not sandals at least i've seen that though in wisconsin growing up you see all types you see all types of people who they either some you know adapt to the elements well and fight them that way. Some refuse to acknowledge the elements. That's another manner of fighting, just refusing to yeah. live realistically. <laughs> That's how I whatever fight. Whatever <laughs> makes you survive, whatever. <laughs> yeah, gives you frostbite. Whatever gives your toes frostbite. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need your toes. It's fine. <laughs> um, and then like once they finally get in there they have like a mutual agreement where they both want to take like hot showers which of course any water is like a sign of renewal and like so they wash off the past uh pain and everything and then they have this camaraderie at at the end where there's more warmth 
followed by warmth and um, more connection there. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really nice and not explained explicitly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and I thought that the the pain and difficulty contrasted to the ultimate satisfaction of having done it and of of the the feelings of pleasure afterwards. I thought that was a really nice contrast as well. She did a really good job with contrasting those two emotions, those two stark realities, I suppose, um, really well. So Yeah. I liked it. Fitting enough they get their respite in the kind of I don't know, the cozy comforts of that person's home. <laughs> Just odd that yeah. he was there or something. I'm not really sure what to make of it because he does leave so quickly. He's kind of a kindly figure, but also it just disappears, basically. I don't know. Yeah. But no, it's. Yeah. I think for having such a compact setting and it, the flashbacks obviously kind of blow this interpretation up a little bit, but like the campus-based stuff, she's very economical with it. Each each mm-hmm. kind of set piece or each moment has a well-observed positioning or something. And so there's, yeah. yeah, you could read into a lot of the setting as kind of tone setting, amplifying emotional things, being a symbol for things and all that good stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I agree with that for sure. Finally, we get to the big chapter, so let's just dive into it. I almost tried to talk ahead, and now we've arrived 17 through 19. Um, there is a... In this chapter chunk, there is a section in the present tense, but I'm pretty sure it's just Marin telling Mabel this stuff. So I don't think there's anything really de- relevant in the present in these chapters. Yeah. So, so. We're, we're back in the past. Um, Mabel has left for college, so Marin is, of course, you know, listless, not despondent, but just lost, kind of wandering about when all your friends leave town. And you're like, well, I guess I don't have hobbies. <laughs> I guess I don't have thing, <laughs> cool things to do. Uh, I thought I would. So she just wanders around idly. Um, I thought that scene on the beach where she gets that really weird sexual proposition was one of the oddest choices in the entire book. I have no clue. Yeah. Like, was that to, was that a bit of threat of like your sanctuary with your girlfriend is gone. Now the world sees you as like an object or something. I don't, it was, that was such a weird little scene. I t- truly can't place it. <laughs> yeah. That was what I had pulled for my notes as well. As oh, like, okay. We'll get to it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get to it. I just thought I'd call that out. I, there's many more interesting things in this chapter, I think, but as far as bizarre stuff to unpack, you chose the most interesting. That's the most interesting <laughs> weird thing. Um, <laughs> Do you want to just let's just talk about it now? Why you know why postpone? What did you think of it? Yeah, um, I was also super confused. I have so it's on page one sixty, and it starts off with her just like expecting yet another person who knows her mother, and apparently he does. Um, and he says, "I heard you looked a lot like your mom, but this is ridiculous." He didn't sound dreamy at all, but I smiled anyway and said thanks. I've got a van in the lot and some time to spare, he said. My body tensed in spite of the lead and the lead in my stomach, in spite of the way I was sinking into the sand. Darkness rushing in, I made my voice stronger. Who are you even, I asked. I'm Fred, he said. Never even heard of you. And eventually he leaves and she's alone again. But it's just, yeah, like... Here's the confusion for me, maybe, because I, I just gave my slight interpretation, perhaps, with, with Mabel being gone. W- yeah. What's up with the mom? Re- like, why do the mom reference then? She could just have gotten hit on by some beach dude, beach bro, just normally, if that was the point of the scene. 
like to invoke the mom thing and then have it so it's like the guy was fiending after her mom that would have been like 15 years ago didn't she die when she was like six or something yeah so it's like, like a, when it's she been was like super a, young yeah it's been like a decade and she doesn't know this guy but then it's why invoke all that it just i was so confused by the whole interaction me too i was just like i don't i don't even know i think like the purpose was to um to make her feel even more like alone because she was dwelling on Mabel and then immediately once she was like actually alone the dude left she immediately thought of Mabel's mother and thinking about how she needed a mother figure right so it's uh, it's, it's a weird thing because she, she didn't think about Gramps she didn't think about uh, needing Gramps at that point or or ho- wishing that she had known her father or anything like that it was immediately a mother figure that she wanted so mm-hmm. maybe like the i don't know like using the guy to accost her was to really hone in on the idea that she needed more female companionship rather than male companionship or her compounding on like the idea that she just doesn't trust men at all anyway especially with gramps revelation there i don't i don't i'm not sure <laughs> like yeah yeah no i think that the way it calls kind of presses forward who she yearns for who she needs uh, that all does make sense that do, they, yeah, yeah. that i understand it still <laughs> so strange uh, uh, yeah so who does that <laughs> especially when the novel had a chance to if it wanted to introduce kind of uncomfortable unwanted male attention and kind of pushed thematically to that for whatever reason there because there are references too that her mom kind of slept around like she doesn't know who her dad is because she was just she had was living her life freely and you know slept with who she wanted i think we're we're both on board with that in a broad moral sense or something but like the novel doesn't really want to play that up too much it seems anyway the novel had a chance both with more stories of her mother maybe that was like part of her life that she was like proud of or something you know she didn't want a man around maybe but that again that's never played up and then of course there's the interlude with the groundskeeper like I mean, I guess that would have been too uncomfortable because they're in his hat. But it's like they, there's places where they could have played with that tension or awkwardness, but it's just so not a part of the book. <laughs> so yeah. having it yeah. come up randomly was just like, what the hell is happening? Um, yeah, strange. Yeah, and she did have a relationship with a guy earlier, that Ben guy, who's like now one of her closest friends, and they remained right. really close friends even afterwards. So yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I yeah. don't know. Strange, strange stuff. All right, let's get to the meat, Amanda. We've ignored this long <laughs> enough. We learn in this chapter then that Gramps has disappeared. She doesn't know where to. She has some panic. She's d- d- worried about him. Um, she believes, I forget why exactly, maybe just because of the timing of it all, that he's probably gone for good, has a fear that he maybe left, committed suicide potentially, crosses her mind. Yeah. And so the police are called, I think, by a friend. Anyway, when they arrive, or before that, I think, actually, we uh, finally get to the narrative's long-held mystery, so we solve this before the cops can. Gramps, in the back of the home, the unaccessed part of their house together, was keeping a shrine to Marin's mother in his wing. So he had boxes of memorabilia, um, photos, tons of personal artifacts, which, of course, earlier in the story we were told he had none, so that was a lie. And so he did have a ton of that stuff. Uh, really, though, the kicker and the crux of it, I think, is the the letters, of course. Like, he yeah. has been imitating her voice and writing to himself back and forth 
this whole time. That's the support of Birdie that he has. It's the emotional betrayal that the entire novel has built up to and will, you know, unpack for the rest of the story. I just will read briefly from 169. This is when the revelation kind of first comes out, and we'll talk about some of the narrative decisions here. She unfolds a letter, and it says, Daddy, it said, the mountains look beautiful today. When are you going to visit me just for a little while? Marin has school and her own friends. You can leave her for a couple weeks. I stopped reading. I turned the letter behind it. It was addressed to Claire Delaney, Colorado, no stamp, never sent. I pulled out the paper. You know I can't do that, not yet, but soon, soon. I grabbed another box of letters. They were all from him to her or from her. Her to him. They were all in his handwriting. They dated back so many years. I was trying to read, but my vision kept blurring. And then the, you know, cops show up. She smells his cigarette smells. Um, okay. <laughs> I think the way I phrased it earlier was both too melodramatic and not melodramatic enough. I, w- <laughs> I will say this as we can unpack that statement. I'm extremely glad for intensity, for the kind of crippling almost eeriness of this revelation that he was writing like her because that really adds a layer i've actually heard of i don't know if you've heard of this phenomenon not a phenomenon i think it's probably common but people when they lose someone will like still text them or email them that kind of a thing have you heard of people Mm -hmm. doing this Yes. So that yeah. I think would have been then it would have then I would have firmly thought like oh this isn't much of a twist at all like he was just a reclusive guy who was a private guy you know like okay it's you don't have to be as upset as she was maybe I don't, you know she can live her emotional truth but to be responding and then also of course the lying is the most important part that he didn't keep anything didn't have anything to say about it and he obviously had a ton to think and say about it is the main crux but like I the the whole quote there in the childlike yearning pleading voice to be writing that for another person who's dead i did think put it over the top in a good way i was like okay that is it got like a shiver feeling reading it like okay this person was deeply um damaged and like needed a significant amount of mental help if they're doing that um yeah so I don't. Yeah, kudos to the story, I guess, because I do think that was the right to push it that far was the right move. I almost wish I didn't. I don't need more secrets, I guess. I, I suppose it was enough, but it also felt kind of like, oh, that's oh, he was hiding stuff. That's it. I guess it was maybe too telegraphed. Like they talk so much about his hidden rooms and like. I, so maybe that was the part that kind of fell flat. But I do think the voice in the letter, the back and forth, I was very satisfied by that revelation because of its eerie creepiness. Sadness. Yeah, um, I think that that is the correct word, eerie. Um, and it does, um, I think, tie in really well with like the the novels that and the the novels that we had um, noticed the allusions to and stuff. They're they're also creepy, and the idea of like the haunting is what's the problem, not the ghosts themselves, but the haunting is the the issue. Mm-hmm. And he is ha- haunted and haunting himself, really in the process and um and she in turn is doing the same thing in a different way by by not letting this go and and just wallowing in it until mabel kind of helps shake her out of it there yeah 
And I will say, I know we do these kind of in order now, but we can at least say, I don't think the novel wraps up a resolution for her and her gramps, you know? There's some other resolutions right. that occur. And I was happy with that, too, because it's she yep. obviously hasn't processed it. She obviously, until she really digs into maybe talks with his other friends more and follows up on some things and tries to learn more about his other parts of his life, I don't think she will ever get it or is at least not going to get it until those things happen. So to have this kind of eerie scene this really disturbed uh, moment I don't know if that's the right term I, I want to be delicate with with mental health terms I guess but it, it does seem like a really bad psychosis to do something like that You're free, mm-hmm. like it just reminds me of psycho I, I know that's a totally different thing because he murders people yeah. and dresses Crap. up like the dress up <laughs> thing and having the corpse like uh, I, I know how much more extreme that is but it was what immediately came to mind of like well you have to pretend to be that person who's dead like that's that's yeah i don't know there's a a level of not moving on there that is really kind of disturbing um yeah i but you know then again i i the the writing to others trying to communicate like i think that's healthy i don't know why not have that dialogue it's the returning it and yeah uh anyway (laughs) it's like a mockery in a weird way it's weird i don't i don't know yeah it's it's the the writing to someone who has passed is is definitely i think something that's um a people would find more acceptable because when you visit somebody's grave or you visit um you know if you have a conversation in in your head you're having a conversation in in your head with them you're telling them things and updating them on your life and stuff but not orchestrating a response from them necessarily right and so that's yeah the the writing communication thing i can see how it's it is a it's about you and since you're communicating it in one direction like it's kind of psychologically all about you that's how it feels right. to me as soon as you bring them into it and make things up for them then it's like it's about you still but you're perverting them kind of like in by mm-hmm. definition like i get that you want the response that's kind of the you know what's satisfying but then it's like what do you have to make it so much about you that like you change who they were like why are you not letting that uh, anyway it's yeah it's very complicated (laughs) and i do again admire the novel for given her reaction her the fallout in her life and then also that the novel does not want to resolve this for her completely i think it's yeah it was the right level of strange and like very disturbing i thought to kind Mm -hmm. of like unsettle anyway yeah it works i think really well yeah yeah um in the next couple of chapters murin not only voices her anger at gramps for not sharing her mother because he had not just those letters but he also had like yeah her clothes and and all these pictures that he denied ever having um but also she voices her hope that gramps isn't really dead uh, the flashback is of Murren leaving for the airport directly after making her report at the police station and finding the seedy motel to stay in until the dorms open. And she is haunted by Gramps that entire time. Mm-hmm. And is still kind of haunted by him. Um, and the uh, the the fact that she asks, like, are you, does it actually happen that way? They haven't found his body and all that. I thought that was really, really telling and, al- and almost like Gramps' own denial, his way of, like, denying that his daughter died, because, like, she died by uh, dying in the water, right? I don't, there was no mention of recovering a body or anything like that with her mother either, so... Yeah, yeah. 
the similarity there was pretty telling. It's an important way to end it, too. If, again, you're going to have a story that has certain emotional closures but then refuses to do that with the Gramps thing, then it's it's Mm -hmm. also, you know, kind of, I don't know, metaphorically fitting. Yeah, I agree. To leave him undiscovered. Yeah, and it's a nice... The when when it comes to grief as well, especially when it's something so sudden, and especially in her case where it's immediately followed by a revelation that's really shocking to you mm-hmm. about that person. Yeah, right. It the unrealness of the situation, especially if you don't get that closure at the end, you don't get to say goodbye, you don't get to see the body and and you know pay your respects in that way. The unrealness of of that is, I think. She, portrayed really well um, in these chapters where it's like you just can't believe that you've lost that person especially for her I mean that's her father figure right that's the person that raised her so it's I thought that the author did a really good job with portraying like how hard it is to come to grips with the idea that that person that was so important to you is is gone in that Mm -hmm. way yeah yeah, definitely. Can I give a small shout out here? A little bit of praise. Yeah, I know. I kind of, I kind of laughingly mentioned. Eh, I don't know if it was laughingly, but like she does that late title card, kind of hundred pages in, and I was like, eh, okay, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> I'm okay with it. It's not yeah. my favorite move to have a title in a story, mostly because it's kind of like character names. I know I've gone on this tangent rant before. It's kind of like the lowest level analytical thing to me, where I'm like, I respect it, but d- let's not make that a huge point. <laughs> but mm. it's because you know, so it just feels like the simplest thing you can point to. And be like, oh, um, the graphic novel we're about to do has that with a main character name. <laughs> it's just kind of like let's mm-hmm. not think too hard about this anyway but on 184 (laughs) end of 22 she goes through her routine again relies on that really clipped repetition like i ordered the split pea soup scrambled eggs coffee i used the atm card i tipped 18 percent. i said thank you i said thank you i said see you i look both ways like it's just this list and then so she's you know living this incredibly stripped down life is very depressed cd motel totally alone in the world just all that stuff um it ends with i pulled back the blankets ignored this and ignored the stains i burrowed under like a rodent in a wall i kept trying to find the right position i made myself very still i made my eyes shut you're okay i told myself shh i said so not exactly the title obviously but it's enough of a callback or reference to it that i i really nodded at that and was like that's a good twist it's like yeah obviously earlier in the present we see that this is conveying her emotional state with her ex-girlfriend friend and that they're making up and that it's okay and it's this quiet pleasant thing but like her self-soothing her, like a child and doing that in uh, you know this condition she was in and the life she's living and the depressing crushing simplicity of it and stuff to have her whisper that to herself i thought was such a nice dagger of a moment obviously it's this book kind of has it both ways since we know in the present tense she's doing much better and like has a support system that scene maybe isn't quite as brutal seeming um but it's still really depressing and was a great again just a good way to use the title against itself i enjoyed that version of it the illusion if we want to call it that versus like the other time for example yeah it it also points out like before it was we are okay where she's very focused on the relationship of like her friendship there versus now she's focusing on healing herself so we focus on you are okay and it's the the need to make sure that she as the individual as a person 
actually is okay and is able to move on from that. Yeah, definitely. It's um, yeah, a really clever use of it and you know, well done little scene there. Yeah. Next couple chapters, 23 and 4, Marin and Nabel continue to reconcile. I think I've said that word a lot, but it's I, I, we could dig into the details, but, you know, they're just, <laughs> they have a lot of conversations about why didn't you tell me I should have, and it's just a lot of emotional stakes getting resolved between them. Um, they both talk about regrets in this section, how they handled the passing, how, you know, maybe she should have come to her right away, how Marin obviously, like, literally bolted and, like, escaped almost. It was basically like an escape from the police station, or pr- pretty close to it, you know? Like, they were there, and she, like, snuck out. Anyway... So Mabel does make one final attempt here in the present to get her to come back to California. At this point, she's made it clear her parents don't want to adopt her, but something close to it. They even offer to pay for things and, you know, like pay for expenses. So it's pretty, they're offering a pretty significant life change for her, but it does not work. She is still resolved to be alone. She seems better, but they don't, it's, she doesn't want to go back yet uh they have a quiet goodbye at the door after that marin calls up one of gramps old friends uh whose name i didn't write down (laughs) i know we mentioned it earlier and then learns that they were his old friends his card buddies were able to purchase a lot of his old things back including a lot of the memorabilia and um the personal effects he was given so if and when she's ready they are there so we kind of get this update that she can return to that and process it when she wants to did you like uh his friend's dark joke (laughs) This is another, like, little bit of scene, a little bit, not of scene uh, set dressing, but characterization between some of the older characters. Because I know Gramps, we've said he doesn't get maybe as much as he could have, should have. Did you enjoy mm-hmm. the joke his friend made about turning over in his grave if he had one? It made sense to me. There's, like, yeah. with, with people who have been faced with tragedies um, throughout their lives and, and have gone through a lot, it's the way that they deflect uh is not surprising to me yeah and yeah. also growing up like with a military dad and having a military husband like the, the <laughs> yeah uh some of the comments that that others might find uncouth i'm like yeah that's it, just how in a weird deal. way since we don't get a lot of it with gramps i actually thought the joke was kind of an essential perfect moment because it showed you know th- these are the people with whom he would spend his most intimate like time so it just right. kind of gives a sense of like okay his emotional state was that level probably <laughs> you know like that's yeah. how he wanted to process stuff too we, we get that more explicitly obviously since he's literally avoiding the doctor literally won't get care for his you know whatever's happened it never even says because he doesn't know or she doesn't know so but yeah it was kind of like a second degree removed uh, characterization moment that i was just kind of like oh i i understand this group of friends like i get the yeah i get the emotional register uh, of this group of dudes playing cards just just guys being dudes playing cards <laughs> and being brutally honest right like they mm-hmm. uh yeah there was like a scene i don't remember where exactly in the novel it was <laughs> where uh one of the friends somehow angered Gramps and, and then Gramps is just like, I'm getting there. Hold on or whatever. Like the, yeah. the snappiness, like that's when you can snap at your friend and they're okay with it. Like that's a, a level of closeness there that not a lot of people can you get. You know, there's so. a reference to that later in the story that she says he was worried people would try and poison him. 
And so I thought that's what he was. It was like a he had a flashback moment or something strange. I didn't quite resolve that when she, but she did reference in one of her memory moments, Marin's about like she's you know going back through the rolodex of all the things she remembers about him. It said yeah. something about that, like yeah, that's why he got so angry. Is that he didn't like people pouring drinks for him? I guess like they kind of yeah. filled his drink for him and were like here, and he doesn't like that. I guess yeah, it's. Yeah, Gramps is kind of still an unknown, fittingly enough, in this book, in a lot of ways. I agree. Um, I also noticed, for me, um, in these chapters, how the, the com- I was continuing that comparison between Murrin's grief and Gramps' grief, and how they kind of process their own grief, um, where on uh, pages 187 and, and 188, she, Murrin, is focused on how similar she and Mabel used to be when they were younger in a lot of ways. And physically they are still the same. Oh, right. But that now like standing side by side, they just are so completely different um, from who they once were and who they thought that they were. Um, And so the, how grief changes a person like that even more so than just physical distance but that emotional distance that comes with grief um how much that can change a person which can then affect other aspects of their lives i thought that that was a a fitting a really nice way for nina lacour to kind of uh portray that and to really highlight that um in this novel. So I, I really appreciated yeah. that. And especially compared to Gramps, we don't know what he was like beforehand, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that he, his entire reality was affected by his grief. And so the, the fact that he obviously had some changes in his life too, and his mental state and his emotional state, you would think that Nina LaCour, or that, sorry, that, um, Murren would have more, perhaps compassion <laughs> mm-hmm. for yeah. him but uh but yeah again the complexities of of emotions there that was really well done too yeah i think i just had this thought when you were saying all those thoughts about the things we do or don't know about gramps this is a compliment yeah. i can give the decisions around what to include about him what not to the balance that he gets in the book it does mm-hmm. feel like he's living his own novel and we just don't get any of the pages of it or something like um, he, re- he really put. does yeah. th- it really does feel like there's like half this novel's gone and we just never got it but it was still written <laughs> you know it's like it exists but we just don't there's a weird completeness to him but also it's like infuriatingly cut off that yeah it's it's like he's in his own book and it's like oh yeah she just cut you know this novel could have been 700 pages but then it's like the gramp story too and she just didn't include it (laughs) yeah anyway yeah it's that's that's a great way to put that perhaps if Marin had asked that they keep the letters she could maybe yeah i wonder if they'll actually burn those though i read that as like i bet that dude's not gonna do it and just tell her that so she feels good you know i I, that's how i interpreted it but she did get a chance to read them um i mean take them to like a psychologist man (laughs) yeah get like uh, you need a professional help to i think to help understand that at least a little bit that's yeah there's a lot of complexity there to adopt a persona of a dead yeah. person you love uh, it's um that's a lot to it's just a lot so yeah to to keep them alive and yeah. she's keeping gramps alive too by by hoping that he's actually not dead so mm-hmm. yeah um and then the final chapters yeah um 
Myrne recalls her first time meeting Hannah, her roommate, and how she felt that Hannah and her parents, Hannah's parents, saved her in a way. Yeah, like a feral and, animal um, off the street. She came. Yeah, she she does use the word feral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she decorates her room finally and thinks more deeply Ooh. about how she feels about Gramps and his death. And she feels the need to move, like she physically move around. She needs to do something to make something and is surprised that Mabel and her parents have come to visit. Yeah, the final twist. This is all the same day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, isn't it the day that Mabel left in the morning? They like Yeah, once... she leaves in the morning right. to go to the airport to go back to California. But really, she was just waiting for her Getting parents. Getting her parents, airport. right. Yeah. Uh, Mabel and Murren watch Jane Eyre, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One last reference for all of us <laughs> I- ignoramuses out there. <laughs> and uh, Anna, uh, Mabel's mom, tells Murren that she has wanted to be Marin's Mer- mother from the beginning. And as Murren is finally able to remember something about her mother, as, as Anna is embracing her, she says yes to Anna and is now part of the family and Anna is now like her mom. Yes. And to be fair to the kind of symbolic potence of the ending, I it could have ended with the like yes, but then it does end with her mother, which I thought was like a nice quieter I don't know, didn't feel quite as tropey to just end it with like and yeah, we're a family now. Instead it's like she right. does linger, the book lingers on the this image of, you know, her and her mom who she'll never have but now has now found some kind of replacement for did you think the final moments came together because i will say it was a little bit of both for me it was a mixed reaction i think overall it did hit me in a sentimental way for sure i I will admit that it worked on me big time that when they like showed up i was like oh okay that yeah that like feels good i also would not have put it past the book to do a much quieter ending and like maybe she calls her in a week and it's like hey i i will you know be i will sit like i the book had been so quiet in many ways that i was just like oh if it does end with on a down not a down note but like a reserved note i would have respected it but it went full-blown like we will make you love us ending. <laughs> so I respected it. Do you think it all came together? I think so. Um, I was like, of course they're going to watch Jane Eyre. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. But if if they had not, if, if Nina LaCour had not included that... F- that memory, the only memory that she has of her mother, right? She's she's longing for her mother throughout the book, and she's longing to have something of her mother because she has nothing, no memories, nothing to even trigger her memories. Um, but with that final memory, the the first memory that she has, and it's such a great memory full of all of the senses, really, not just, you know, sight, but there's smell, there's there's taste, there's feeling like she can feel her mother's embrace and and stuff like I was like man that was just a really nice nice ending and if it hadn't had that memory moment I think that the ending would not have been as effective for me yeah yeah it was a nice I mean it's got the ocean view in there which is a huge kind of overwhelming symbol of a kind for the book and what it represents California. I, I like the, this is another case I mentioned coming back to this. So we're here now, the repetition again, the say yes thing I thought was a, maybe a bit cloying, but it was intercut in, in good ways. I think I liked a lot of the flashbacks, like you already mentioned to the mother beach memories and scenes. Mm-hmm. And then I just like that the final, like after she does say yes and, 
responds to that love and is overwhelmed by the love and, and all of it. You know, it's all good stuff. If maybe a little hallmarky, but that's fine. It was nice. And I thought it worked, but yeah, I thought the ending with the beach scene, having that be a, I don't know, the final presence kind of presence, maybe is the word of the book felt right to me. It felt a little, yeah, quieter and a little less, I don't know. Well, yeah, I just enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so great. Yeah. Um, and then tying to, I thought, um, while they're watching Jaina, of course, she's like thinking about um, Gramps and stuff because yeah, that's the whole point of the Jaina comparison. Um, but she talks about uh, on page two twenty eight. She says there are degrees of obsession, of awareness, of grief, of insanity. There's your repetition again. Those days and nights in the motel room, I weighed each of them against the other. I tried to make sense of what had happened, but each time I came up short. Each time I thought I may have understood, some line of logic snapped, and I was thrust back into not knowing. It's a dark place not knowing. It's difficult to surrender to. And this I took to be twofold, especially after the the ending. One, obviously, the not knowing as far as, like, Gramps' actual fate, what happened to Gramps. Yeah, Um, yeah. But also the not knowing anything about her mother. And that's also something that has plagued her throughout her life thus far right and so i thought that once i read the ending i was like oh that's a that's a nice tie-in there too yeah well and especially to know that he had the opportunity and he and he took it from her you know yeah that he could have i guess that aspect of this all i maybe haven't analyzed that aspect of their relationship as closely as i should have but it is crucial to remember of course that the betrayal isn't just that like he was mentally unwell and kept it it was like he could have provided her closure and clarity and refused you know and that that's where the lying i think maybe in the narrative it could have played up the the lying about the yearbook photo thing but it's that moment was clearly meant to represent that that he was actually he wasn't just passively depressed and like a victim he was actively hurting her like and chose to do so i think yeah the the narrative maybe isn't quite that aggressive with seeing it that way Uh, it kind of lets us feel that through her pain instead of just condemning him or something i guess but yeah yeah, that's, I mean, that's critical to to their whole unraveling, the whole relationship. Yeah. Any other final thoughts on how it concluded? Any other Jane Eyre analysis you want to offer? I can't offer any. <laughs> it was clear enough because of the way she talked about it at the ending with the, you know, hiding yeah. people in attics and living double lives or whatever. Um, and the, isn't there a long quote, too, from the book in there about, like, Jane Eyre's final lines or something? Uh, yeah, it's, it's when she's talking to um, Rochester, which they, they use those lines to also connect to the Frida Kahlo painting. Oh, yeah. Okay. Any thoughts yeah. on those lines? Any important readings for this novel that that kicks in? I mean, it's... The... I think it's pretty clear. Like, even when they're watching the the movie and she's describing a couple of the scenes and stuff, it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like, how... So even if you haven't read the book, when she's, like, discussing the the movie scenes... Right, right. It makes... Yeah. It, it clarifies it. I, it. It's whatever. I it's did me. not... Yeah. As someone, again, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm happily the consultant, the ignorant consultant. Um, ignorance, rather, consultant. And, yeah, even I had a pretty clean reading of it i was like oh okay yeah yeah sure i get this yeah it's pretty she she 
made sure that we understood the the comparisons there gotcha. for sure. okay excellent well that wraps up the plot of the story let's move to our final segments here We've got a couple of them planned the usual ending ones let's start with critical assistance this is when we go outside of our own analytical minds and consult with an, another expert perhaps a blogger could be from a newspaper could be from a magazine we've relied on the new yorker a lot in the past uh, we're going to pull some quotes from a piece of criticism talk through them see if we agree disagree and where we come out on things do you want to start with yours because yours is um included in the bur- in the book in this version yeah it's the uh, it's the foreword from yeah um an author named nina yoon who's like after reading her foreword i was like oh she sounds like i, I like the way that she writes i would <laughs> probably mm-hmm. try to, to read something from hers um <laughs> nice um and yeah so it's how and why i got pretzel dust in my eyes and it was the foreword um so I just pulled like three different lines that I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, Nina's prose is spare and joyous and fresh. Each sentence feels like something newly come to life. And I think the word spare is really perfect. She's hmm. yeah, because there, you don't get a lot of like overly complex sentence structures or anything like that. There's um, the, the sentences are fairly simple and it's very like to the point even like the repetition that you've pointed out it's all simple phrases simple it is um clauses at times so it's i think but the the how spare it is does not detract from the effectiveness of it i think yeah no i agree yeah i agree um So that was one. The other is, Mm -hmm. the book slipped quietly under my skin. Nina's words built a small glittering world of beauty and emotion and truth. So Mm -hmm. coming into YA novels, I often am like, okay, here we go. Here's going to be some, you know, some emo stuff with like (laughs) like overly (laughs) anxious teenagers. Yeah, angsty. yeah, who know better than than adults a lot of the time about everything and you know all the all the stereotypes that we have about young adult literature. So like I mm-hmm. often approach it with like that kind of like attitude. So I'm like, "Meh." But this book, like as I was reading it, I was like, I think the slipping quietly under my skin. I think that it really did that because of her portrayal of grief and growing up at the same time which is like a a terrible time to have to deal with that um anyway because you've already got so many things that's going on um and it it is a very emotional book and yeah so i thought that that was a a perfect way to phrase that for me yeah i think the gets under your skin quietly i mean that's a maybe even a it's under the skins, maybe a cliche, but it's well said. And, and I think yeah. the quietly part is what ma- what matters, you know, most. Because yeah. I think that's that is definitely the truest part of it. It, yeah, you kind of get lost in the world of the book. It's so quiet and subtle and stuff that it it doesn't mm-hmm. need to berate you with very much to get you invested in everything. And yeah, the ending yeah. is is so so built to. I don't know. I was going to say manipulate. That feels just like not what I want it to mean. <laughs> but it, it's clearly built to pay off some sentiment, I guess. There you go. Nice. Nicely put. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the final thing that I pulled was I could feel te- uh, tears gathering inside me as I read the last words. And I had a lot of tears of joy and catharsis. This is a truly beautiful book. Um, I also uh, will admit that I, I straight up cried at mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. Like, 
right now, like <laughs> anything to do with like mother daughter relationships, I'm like in tears. Yeah. Like, so fast. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I wonder if I, I think I may have teared up a bit. I have a hard time um, at the end of any book, like doing a long cry, you know, I'll get like a, I'll get the well eyes. It's more of that. It's uh, not like, I, it's not like I have to do a stop reading so I can, you know, wipe off kind of a cry. It's more of just like, I get the well eyes up and I get the chest, the chest feelings, you know, uh, I definitely felt, I definitely felt that way. It was, I think I, I maybe did a slight kind of like guffaw when they showed up because it was just kind of like oh that's the ending this book will now deliver you know mm-hmm. it's like once that happens mm-hmm. it's clear that the emotions are gonna come down in a very positive way <laughs> once they arrive but i was just kind of like oh okay it is gonna deliver that to us thank you because it the book deserved either ending i guess i i, th- I feel like it maybe even had earned a different very different ending but um mm-hmm. it, it was good it was good Probably yeah, the right I, uh, I had the ugly cry. Like, yeah, it was just like so sweet and and dripping with sentiment, really. And I was just like, <laughs> and the conversation, <laughs> like the, the, the conversation they have too is very thorough. That's another part that could yeah. really pull the tears out. Too. It's not like it's not like they show up and have a sweet cuddle by the tree. It's like they they right. hash it out, you know, and they say mm-hmm. things out loud that need to be said, so to speak. So yeah, I think it's very emotionally strong. The ending, it it can it deserves that reaction. I think it, it you know it earned it. Yeah, well done. Um, any other quotes from that one? Oh, that was the last one. Nope. Okay. That was it. I uncorked another weird one for... Yeah, no, me too. I only pulled a few quotes from my critical assistants. I pulled this from... So do you know the film... I think it's a distribution company, production company, Annapurna? No. Okay, well, they make movies I've liked. They also actually have a video game wing that makes some interesting games I've liked. But I saw... So when I was plucking through the Google returns on searching for criticism and review of the, about this i saw something called the annapurna express so i was like wow they have a publishing wing how strange then i click on it it's not that even remotely at all oh. <laughs> it is a english is an english language um publication kind of an all-encompassing culture magazine from nepal uh, the country, oh. Nepal, <laughs> like north of India, Nepal. Yeah, and so I clicked around their website for a minute. It seemed professionally made and, and everything. It's solid. So then I just clicked on the review and read it, and I was like, I am going to use this. So shout out to the Annapurna Express if you live in Nepal and need uh, some English writing that's that seems solid and well curated. There you go. <laughs> this is by Kier Bassnet. So uh, go look up that review. No title, just a review. Um, I think they call it a simple, touching read, but it's just a book review. So, yeah, shout-outs to them. Let's talk through some quotes. Uh, one of them, Every time I see the spine of the book on the shelf, I'm reminded of how the simple story made me feel, and I get goosebumps. LaCour's tale of grief and coming to terms with it is a lesson on how you don't have to navigate your life alone, and that being open and accepting the help of love you can get can heal you. For such a slim book, it packs quite a punch. So, the final line... I think I agree with. We know on this podcast, or we know it, hopefully you listeners have figured it out too, we love small books that are powerful. That's, I think, our sweet spot, maybe. Um, but we've done some longer ones that were powerful too. But yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's it does accomplish a pretty clear mission of examining loss and depression and how to recover, in a sense, and does so pretty effectively and efficiently. So yeah, I think it's a simple and, like she said, kind of you know economical. I, yeah, I think that that last line is really uh, perfect, but we, 
when he says or she says uh, how you don't have to navigate your life alone and that being open and accepting the help and love you get can heal you. We don't actually see her healed at the end. And I don't know right. that it is that she... Mabel definitely helps, but other things also help. Hannah helps, right? Mm-hmm. And um, her... Well, she also receives out. care from her family. You know, they right. like give her stuff and care. Yeah, it's uh, the way it ends with her being welcomed into a new family. We presume that's going to go okay. Like, I there's no yeah, reason yeah. the book doesn't show us any reason to think it wouldn't. It does seem like, and also of course the whole story, what she's struggling with. Should I go back? Should I go back? Saying no, saying no. It's like she's yeah. The the tension of her waiting to accept more help from others is you know is I think one of the key tensions. It's I think that when she comes to um, open up more to others is actually she needs to do that for herself. So I think that, yeah, it's like, you know, receiving help from others is like, it is helpful in a way, but her real gains in overcoming the grief is by her own like analysis and just kind of like using somebody as a sounding board, which is Mm. Mabel. Yeah. Yeah. to get out these things and once it's out then she's like okay so it's i don't know it's it's more complex than just like hey you're really sad you should just let people take care of you it's like definitely mm, you need to like some some people process their their feelings differently they need that alone time in order to process and to then Use, have a sounding board later so I yeah. Just, yeah well no and the, and the thing with Gramps is such a damn mess still the book is extremely yeah. clear about that like it is not will never be resolved it's he's yeah. gone and there's no resolution to that in fact he left you know a literal like labyrinthian disaster behind him so of that of no one can explain <laughs> except for him so yeah I think yeah. the book's at least clear about that too it's not going to be it's not so simple right but the way it ends on that, I wouldn't begrudge a person that reading because the ending is so blatantly in that direction. So, yeah, yeah no, that's true. Uh, a couple more quotes. These are brief. LaCour is a noted LGBTQIA plus novelist, and she explores the relationship between Marin and Mabel in that context as well. Ah, this is weird. Uh, is this um, I'm going to do the annoying thing of like the. I don't. I choose not to see race or sexuality, so I don't. It's like that's. I find that point of view insane. Um, would you recommend this book on those terms, though? Like, it, can I give the book that blindness compliment of like it's just a pretty well done relationship? I don't know if that aspect of it mattered. Um, it also begs a really interesting artistic question, of course, that I don't think we have to uncork on this podcast, maybe, but I'll at least pose it. Can a book be categorized under that label if it isn't part of the conflict of the story? Nobody pressures right. that. It's never a problem. Obviously, in a dream world, it would never be one. But again, we don't live in a dream world. Uh, so it's like, I, I just, that quote kind of blew my mind because I was like, never once while reading this book did I think about it in those terms. Like, oh, this is an observation of what it's like to be gay or to come out or to develop that or to have friends. And then, you know, trying you're trying to live your love life and then your friends and like, no one ever talks about it. So it just felt like when she put that line in, I was like, I guess that's true. But it, 
I would not put this on the bookshelf in the Barnes and Noble under like exploring uh, queer identity or gender identity. Like I would not put this book there. I just would not. It's weird though to say that. Yeah, it feels like I'm doing the color blindness thing with the with the <laughs> sexual identities. No, it it makes sense. Like I'm also surprised. Like I wouldn't label it as such just because that is w- one small aspect of their their bigger relationship which is just like how well they've known each other like forever yeah yeah they are like in the end they're sisters right Mm -hmm. but the the romantic aspects of that i mean that that's just a part of being a teenager like yeah it observes some teen (laughs) stuff decently well i thought well yeah but it but then again we get back to the question of like well to put it under that category the the lgbtqia plus like does there have to be trauma like i i would hope not you know it's like i hope that that group doesn't have to feel like in order to be seen it's like no it's got to be painful and your parents have to hate you and your friends have to isolate like it's that stuff just seems that seems terrible too like i don't i'm not advocating that all those books have to be painful or that like let's let some beautiful quiet ones uh hopefully many of them be written but it's just I don't know. Their romance just didn't, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like objectively that label, but I would just would never have thought to put, give this to, book to someone who's like, I want to learn about that community, that tension, that, uh, I don't know. It just would, I, this would not have hit in my brain in that way in any way. I would give this to somebody yeah. who wanted to read about depression or like loss (laughs) it's like anyway yeah it was just such a funny comment because i was like yeah that is in there i don't think this book's noteworthy in that way in any way (laughs) in like any regard it was like a nice teen romance between two nice people you know that are trying to understand each other exactly and and it says like the quote here says she explores a relationship between them in that context as well i don't think that really that liqueur really goes to great lengths to explore that except to be like to make it clear, like Mabel is like, just to be clear, like the reason that I started dating this dude is because you never responded to me, which is actually a bigger issue of like just communication and, yeah, and their yeah. way, their their friendship suffering. A hundred percent. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when the when I saw that quote too with the context thing, I thought back to like, okay, what could be unique about it, right? What's what's uniquely LGBTQIA plus about it, right? That could not have been in another version. And then I was like, well, maybe the whole like they were so intimate as friends, and they kind of just like fell into drunken love and like finally explored that together. But it's like that's also a trope that's as old as time with like regular hetero romance stories of just like yeah, people are oh they're such good friends like oop see how they flirt at work they're work buddies oop. Ooh, and then they it's just like that shit's that's classics i don't know it didn't yeah. that's like not like a unique thing for that category so i don't know yeah anyway it's in there <laughs> we just I, I look back now at our analysis of this whole book and it's like we never talked about that at all like not one time yeah, did we stop to talk thing, about yeah. it <laughs> uh, we're just like oh yeah they're dating because they're teens they got drunk and made out on a beach um so cool <laughs> yeah so anyway worth bringing up um final quote we are okay conveys a powerful message about love loss and friendship it's just the book you should pick up if you are in need of some comfort and that's how the review ended amanda they stole our um book rack highlights section here <laughs> so let me just pose this to you is this the book you would bring for comfort or for sadness like what in what emotional state should you read this book I don't know that I would want to read this for comfort. Um. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I was like, okay, maybe not the categorization we would do. I'm not sure. 
Yeah. Um, no, I think that this is more of an exploratory, like a way to explore how to deal with grief and to maybe comfort knowing that you're not being weird in how you're exploring your grief. Okay. But again, that's okay. more about the grief aspect. So I think that if you're feeling either like you're feeling at a loss about something or if you're just like kind of in a in a bad mood and you're not sure like you're feeling lonely especially if you're feeling lonely i think I that this would be a good book i and then i wonder too so i was just gonna say i think loneliness maybe would be the immediate condition but then yeah i the book also resolves in like the people who care about her are so aggressive about caring and it's like if you're <laughs> lonely and you don't have people in your life who are gonna fly across the country for you or forcibly adopt you i mean i know i'm saying these things of course hyperbolically metaphorically but it's just yeah. like i could see a person reading this and being like okay, well, yeah, I definitely don't have anyone like that in my life at all. <laughs> like, I can't reach mm -hmm. out to... And so it's just kind of like, I don't know if I'd reckon... I mean, I think it can help process some things for sure. Uh, and I enjoyed a lot yeah. of the writing. Um, I don't know if I'd throw it under my comfort category, though. I, You know, the ending is, is so, somewhat comforting. But um, if you're in a deeply depressed, a lonely state, I don't know. I, it's... I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's almost like a almost like a, a guide or a pamphlet almost of like of of how grief can be processed and how loneliness can be processed yeah um because she does isolate herself completely um in her grief as well so it's yeah yeah i, I don't I, I i don't think that i would offer this for somebody that i'm like this will cheer you up uh, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes so. you need to mope, as we talk about in the highlights all the time. It's true. <laughs> sometimes it you true. gotta mope. Okay. Let's close out the episode by inducting something from this book into the Lightly Literary Hall of Fame, a relatively new segment on the pod where, when we finish a book, we celebrate something that we liked maybe the most or something unique about the book that we just want to include in our hallowed pantheon of good literary stuff. Let's uh, start with yours, Amanda. What are we inducting into the Hall of Fame? I'm gonna say the the tear jerking ending, like ah uh, yeah, get ready for the sobs, like mm -hmm. my face, like I had to get a tissue and everything, and got the the whole like you know when you're like got the heaving chest and you're <gasps> like that, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah of course that was me <laughs> powerful. Is this the first book? I don't think I've cried at one of our books yet. Was this the first one? I think for me as well. I'm I'm looking over some of the books that we've read together, and yeah, like mm. I think, I think this might be the first one. Books um, don't get me that often, honestly. I need the yeah. I need the um, the music of a movie to put it over the top to like really hit me. Honestly, mm. I feel like I tear up um, just in terms of engaging with like art. Uh, these days, I feel like music gets me the most weirdly mm. like if i have my headphones on and i've had like two or three beers and i hear the right like song just like lay down you know i i don't know yeah something about books i think books because my brain is too engaged with like d trying to unpack stuff that i don't know if i get swept yeah. up as much it, it can happen i'll always remember the first book i ever cried at is in a at least as an adult like i'm sure i cried at some books when i was like you know a child or young but do you remember the first book you cried while reading let's say like high school age or above oh man um I don't know. I, I cry at everything. So, like, yeah, I mean, a bad question, the then. ASPCA commercials, 
They're like, what, a minute? <laughs> yeah. I cry every single time. Okay, okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm way too sentimental with, like, well, everything. But you were putting this one in the Hall of Fame, though. Um, do you think it's worthy, yeah. though? I mean, not, I, you I didn't get a cheap do. one. I, I, yes, because I think that that ending in particular, like, without that ending, as I said before, like, I, I just think that the ending made this book, and mm-hmm. yeah. it's it it completely changes... Um, my perspective on it, it even changes like the perspective on like her, her idea of loneliness and grief even. Yeah. Um, yeah. and how, and, and really highlights the betrayal of Gramps as well. And I just, yeah, the mother child relationships. I mean, that was just really well done, especially since we never get to meet her mother. So it's like, man, it's so true. Great. Just so great. I really think, Oh, let me go back. I know I alluded to this. The the book I can remember crying at, cause again, just not the medium that gets me most often was, um, all quiet on the Western front. I read that in college. I remember in, oh, I remember wow. where I was in my dorm room. I finished it. And I was just like, fucked up. <laughs> I was just like, Oh man, <laughs> what's going on with war? <laughs> what's, up yeah. with, what's up with the war? <laughs> uh, yeah. What the hell's going on? Um, so I, I'll always remember that moment. So distinctly the closest I think I've come in a book we've done on, for the pod. This wasn't as, our current iteration um, was the ending of Underground Railroad with the mother scene. But that wasn't, mm. I don't think I was ready to cry. I was just felt so hollow kind of, I was yeah. so scooped out by that. It was just like, ex- it was like exhausting to get to the end of the book and then just be like, Oh, by the way, it was all a myth anyway. And it was like, Oh my God. <laughs> it was just, yeah. I thought that was really brutal. Yeah. So I that think, was- um, Bluest Eye, uh, some of the scenes in there were pretty yeah. brutal, and um, Native Son. Like, that was tough. Yeah. And Native Speaker with um, mm, yeah. with their son. Yeah. That was... That was any. I guess for me, it's like yeah. Anything with kids, I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, you've you've opened yourself up to vulnerabilities, Amanda. That's uh, part of, yeah. part of the beauty of life, though. <laughs> I'll go ahead and throw in the Hall of Fame. Um, this, I hope I can explain this well. I'm going to go with an economical use of setting and location. So it's a slim book, which you know we love. But again, if we ignore the California parts, just isolate the campus stuff, I thought all the setting stuff kind of worked really well. Like every moment or part of it has a symbolic relevance and kind of, I wouldn't call it an allegory for, I would definitely not call it an allegory, but you could almost elevate the setting work to allegorical levels of like, oh yeah, that's a simple, you know, it's like they're stuck in the, like how many, I guess here's what I'm thinking. How many creative things can you think of on a campus? Like an interesting place, but building in terms of hollowed out buildings, like it's not that interesting, right? There's not a lot of like stuff to do so that they, they use the right. kitchenette well there's some interesting details in there intimate kind of lonely the elevator they get stuck in the elevator they use the they go up to the building top for some revelations like the groundskeeper's house is this kind of like midpoint in the book it's like a peaceful detente or something it's like a neutral ground or something that they are able to go yeah. it's there's that italian restaurant at the illusion at the end where they have their like family dinner the pottery shop is like a place for her to start to heal a little bit and kind of connect with her grief and obviously there's that kind of artistic creation i don't know it just feels like every setting if you wanted to do a little bit of that reading you could so i just think i'm I'm inducting the kind of economical use of a small location and seemingly getting a little bit out of everything i think yeah for sure i, th- I think that her the way that she's able to connect um Murren's 
emotional state with the setting that she yeah, yeah. is in. It's just really well done and and beautifully written. For I, sure. I agree with that. Has kind of a short story attention to detail where you just know there's not anything wasted, so to speak. Like you're, you you have to yeah. think to yourself like, oh, this does all mean something. Whether or not you need to unpack it all to, to like the book or understand is a different thing. But it just felt like right. smartly observed. Um, and there's just enough noticeable ones for you to think about the others that you maybe did not. So yeah, put it in the Hall mm-hmm. of Fame, right? <laughs> slowly building up our choice, yeah, yeah, slowly building up our Hall. Any final <laughs> thoughts on We Are Okay by Nina LaCour? Nope. All right, we laughed, we cried, we joked about putting real Christmas trees in your home, so I think we did our job. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to tell them about the books we've got coming up? Yeah, so the next three books are The Inkle by Hodorowsky and Mobius, um, which is a French graphic novel. Yes. Sci-fi. Yep. Um, then we have Uncommon Type, Some Stories, which is a short story collection written by the Tom Hanks. Yep, we're going big time. Hollywood. <laughs> and uh, and the third book is Jazz by Toni Morrison. She's back. Who, yeah, we've read before and we're reading the the next book for her. So I could not let Exciting. Stephen King, who I have grown to respect, maybe not admire, but I, I kind of get it. I've explored him on my own a little bit because of the pod. I could not let him be the for only repeat author. Had to bring back mm. one of the greats because I think it's just been nice. him so far, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's been the only repeat. Uh, we did short stories by him, and, right. and then um, the first in it, the series from Gunslinger. Him. Yeah, couldn't couldn't let it be. Had to bring back the had to call the Titan back off the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> had to call call back to Tony. Um, so yeah, we'll see how jazz. I think also jazz has a bit of a romance in it, which I'm curious about because we we don't get a ton of directly. We don't get a lot of romance-focused stuff, so I think that yeah. hopefully will work well for that. We'll see. Maybe Tom Hanks is secretly a romantic. He might be. He might be. Might be. Might have some romance, some kissing in there. Let's see how Tom Hanks wants to talk about kissing. You ready to, <laughs> ready to unpack that? <laughs> Let's do some kissing with Tom. All right. <laughs> That'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. We have been, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at that name, at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Um review us please give us five stars on a podcast platform that you're on itunes spotify google wherever you're at we are there we appreciate it and as always we'll see you between the pages